From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, a new film about a black writer who is told his work is not black enough. It's the movie American Fiction, starring Jeffrey Wright. John Powers will comment. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. But first, reasons for hope from Iowa Republicans. John Nichols will report in a minute. Maybe you heard the news. Iowa Republicans met in caucuses on Monday. 51% voted for Donald Trump as their 2024 presidential candidate. 21% voted for Ron DeSantis and 19% for Nikki Haley. John Nichols was there. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation, author of many books. Most recently, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, co-authored by Bernie Sanders. John, welcome back. It's good to be with you, my friend. Well, the New York Times called it Donald Trump's triumph. Nevertheless, you found reasons for hope in the entrance polls. That is true, my friend. And, you know, at caucuses, you don't do an exit poll. You do an entrance poll because I got to get people going in because caucuses are long affairs and uh, people don't leave all at the same time. But also there's a subtlety to it. Our media desperately wants to make predictions about, you know, turnout and results and things like that. And so they do the entrance polls. And unfortunately, the entrance polls tend to get tossed aside as soon as they get the top line that tells you who they think is going to win. And this case being Trump. But I I found this entrance poll fascinating because in the midst of it, they asked if Donald Trump is convicted. They didn't ask about the charges and all that. They said, if he's convicted, would he be unfit for office? And 32% of the people who came out, the Republicans who came out in communities where sometimes the windshield was 45 degrees below zero, right? So these are pretty motivated folks. 32% of them said that Trump would be unfit. That's a striking figure. And I'll say one other thing about it that's important. I'm not naive. I know that there are plenty of Republicans who would vote for an unfit candidate if that candidate had an R after their name. But what I am telling you is, if you've got a third of people participating in the Iowa Republican caucuses saying a convicted Trump would be unfit for office, that's, that's a red flag. That's a significant number and it fits with the number of national polls as well. So I think that's something we ought to be focusing on at least as much as we do the fact that Donald Trump uh, got a bunch of Iowans to vote for him yesterday. About 115,000 people showed up for these. This is a state with what, more than a million and a half voters or something like that. So you're right. These are the most committed, most passionate Republicans. And if a third of them, almost a third of them say he'd be unfit to serve, we do have a significant reason for for hope here. 51% voted for Donald Trump. I don't know, is that a triumph? Half of Republicans say they'd rather have somebody else. I guess it's a triumph compared to 2016 when when he lost to the man he called Lion Ted Cruz. At that point, you will recall, Trump claimed fraud and demanded that the Iowa Republican Party nullify the results and do it over. They refused, so compared to that, This Monday was a triumph, but uh, does this mean that the Republican primary season is over and we don't have to do this on Wednesday mornings uh, from now on? (laughs) Well, we may have to do a few Wednesday mornings before it's done. 
Uh, but let's let's put a few things in perspective. Number one, yeah, winning half the vote in a in a caucus as the immediate former Republican president of the United States and the front runner in in the race by any measure, the guy who literally is in the news every day and thus is identified whether you like him or not as the biggest known Republican, is not overwhelming. Especially when you're running against Ron DeSantis, you know, who, <laughs> you know, by the nature of the game, you know, turns people off every time he meets them. Uh, I don't think it was all that impressive a finish. It was, you know, it's a credible finish. He won, give him that. But he won 98 of 99 counties. So he did have a broad sweep in urban, rural, and suburban areas. And that, give him that. But what was notable was that in the more suburban areas, Nikki Haley really did show strength. Uh, DeSantis came in second, Haley a very close third. Uh, that's going to be very significant next week in New Hampshire, because New Hampshire, the Republican base there, is very much dominated in the southern part of New Hampshire in very suburban areas. And, and so you've got a different dynamic politically in New Hampshire, and Haley has been in some polls closing the gap. So I think that New Hampshire is the real test. New Hampshire is going to be the place where it's make or break. If Trump wins New Hampshire big, then I think we can say this is this is pretty much over. You know, he's going to be the nominee, like him or not. On the other hand, if Haley were to beat him in New Hampshire, then you combine that with these numbers we're talking about, a third of voters say unfit if he's convicted, then suddenly that churn, that discomfort with a possibly convicted Donald Trump becomes a real factor in the Republican race. I don't think it defeats him, but I do think it keeps that race going for a good deal longer. There's a deeper question about uh, Iowa that I'd like to talk to you about. It's political transformation over the past couple of decades. Iowa used to be a democratic state. No state in the nation has swung as heavily Republican between 2012 and 2020 as Iowa. Uh, in 2012, Obama carried Iowa by six points. In 2020, Trump carried Iowa by eight points. So that's a 14 point difference between Obama in 2012 and Trump in 2020, bigger than any other state. Do you have a theory to explain this? Sure, uh, a couple of theories. And first off, I'm gonna take you through a quiz, John. Are you ready? <laughs> I'll try. All right, who won California in 1988? 1988, I cannot remember. George H.W. Bush. Who won Vermont in 1988? I do not know. George H.W. Bush, the Republican <laughs> nominee. Who won West Virginia in 1988? I give up. Michael Dukakis, the Democrat. Uh, <laughs> How can I forget Dukakis? My point is that states change. California can go from backing the Republican nominee for president in 1988 to being what it is today, which is basically a two-thirds Democratic state. These changes are, are a part of our political dynamic. And yeah. then you ask, okay, is there something anomalous about Iowa? Is it a, a unique dynamic? It does relate to something that you and I have talked about a little bit in the past. Rural America has felt extremely left out of our politics for a long time. Iowa is not an entirely rural state, but it has a very substantial rural population. Its rural counties are still uh, quite dominant in Republican politics, especially. And, and it used to be that Democrats could hold their own in rural areas because they had a rural strategy. They had, they had candidates like Tom Harkin and others who could talk rural, frankly, for lack of a better term, and connect on the issues. And you could be quite liberal and still be in touch. That's 
falling apart in Iowa. Frankly, it's falling apart in North Dakota, which was a state that sent Democrats to the U.S. Senate until very recently. It's been weakened in my own state of Wisconsin and others. The Democratic Party has got to be able to talk to rural America. If it does, then you're going to see, you know, some you know, clawback in a place like Iowa. You're also going to see Democrats uh, win in places like Montana, where, you know, John Tester is holding on. Uh, and maybe again in places like North Dakota. You cannot get people's votes unless you talk to them. And I don't think Democrats do enough talking to rural folks. I studied this a, a, a little bit. The, the cities of Iowa remain Democratic. Yeah. Of the nine largest counties in Iowa, only one switched from Obama to Trump. It's the other places that you're yeah. talking about that really make the difference. And there has been a significant economic decline. I mean, Iowa is not exactly a rust belt state. It doesn't have steel mills, but it does have a lot of smaller cities and towns that had factories. And those those have disappeared in the last couple of decades. And you've seen also, uh, this is a big thing. I know that it's like, why do we end up talking about antitrust laws with Iowa? Well, antitrust is a huge deal for Iowa because you've seen the agribusiness uh, come in there and, and take overwhelming control of you know farm country and of the economies in small towns and rural areas. And so there's plenty of work where Democrats could, could talk about these issues. I, I always remind people that in 1984, 1988, Jesse Jackson competed in Iowa and he didn't win, but he did pretty well. I mean, he got, he got some traction there because uh, he went out to rural areas and he talked to farmers and they were like, oh, okay, I get it. And in the fall of 1988, Dukakis won Iowa as a Democrat talking about farm issues. And so this can be done, but it hasn't been done in a long time. At this point, I doubt that Iowa is going to be a competitive state this fall. I think that Trump is very likely to prevail there. But if the Democratic Party was smart, what they would do is begin that rebuilding process. It's the old Howard Dean 50-state strategy. And a part of a 50-state strategy is to have a really smart approach to rural issues. Uh, at this point, I don't think Democrats have have begun to talk enough about those issues. Going back to the campaign that just ended there, I was astounded by the amount of money spent on TV ads. My friends who live in Iowa City say the best thing about the Republican caucuses is it's the end of the TV ads. They were drowned in, in negative ads. $123 million spent on attack ads, basically uh, DeSantis and Haley attacking each other. Tricky Nikki versus DeSantis, too weak to lead. If you take $123 million, divide it by the 115,000 people who voted, I think you get something like $1,000 per vote spent on primary ads. Is my arithmetic right here? Yeah, if Iowa was flooded with TV ads. And I strongly disagree with you about, you know, being excited those ads are done. <laughs> I will tell you, there is nothing more fun than, than, you know, watching like Ron DeSantis find out ways to pick on Nikki Haley and, <laughs> and stuff like that. And, you know, I this year was pretty good in this regard, although I will never, ever forget when a couple of years back when the Iowa caucuses were just the week after Christmas, they, they had them very early in January. And the candidates had to figure out how to integrate Christmas into, <laughs> into their attack ads. And they did it. The amount of money spent on TV advertising in Iowa completely obliterates the argument for Iowa as a starting point for the process. The whole theory on Iowa as a starting point for the process is 
that it's grassroots, right? That it's you meet with people in their living rooms, you talk to them, you talk deep on the issues, et cetera. And that just doesn't happen in Iowa anymore. In fact, I was in Dubuque yesterday and I was astounded. I've been in Dubuque on caucus days in the past, even really cold ones. And there are signs out, there are you know headquarters open, there's all this energy that you, you feel on the street. It, it wasn't there this year because these campaigns have poured all their money into television you know, and a little bit into radio and that. And I, I will tell you, um, there's no argument for an Iowa caucus if it's a TV caucus. That's, I mean, there's pretty, pretty good arguments for, for you know, changing the way that nominations are done anyway. But uh, I found it dispiriting and frustrating. And frankly, I think it's actually a part of why, one of the many parts, along with 45 degree below zero wind chill, why the turnout was lower. Iowa had the lowest caucus turnout this year on the Republican side. Uh, in a quarter century, almost a quarter century. And so people weren't energized or excited by all those ads. I think they were actually put off by it. Mm -hmm. You reminded us uh, that we have uh, New Hampshire uh, coming up, the first place everybody gets to vote. And I understand in New Hampshire, Democrats and independents can vote for a Republican candidate. They got to jump through a couple of hoops. Uh, you got to re-register re and stuff like that. But yes, so, you know, there, there are some avenues by which it can be done. And fascinatingly enough, uh, a candidate who's gotten out of the race, Chris Christie, actually made a major play for Democrats and independents. He, he had a whole campaign or a PAC supporting him saying, you know, re-register so you can vote for Chris Christie and stop Donald Trump in the primary. And Christie's out now. But I think uh, the evidence from Iowa is that a decent number of folks may well do that. And you may see some crossover to vote in that Republican primary probably at this point for Nikki Haley, even though a, a more undeserving candidate you could not find. Uh, she's anti-labor. She's extremely right-wing, blah, blah, blah. But you know, she's become sort of this alternative to Trump. And Because, because she doesn't want to rerun the 2020 election and declare Trump president. Yeah, our baseline standard. Although, by <laughs> yeah. the way, she does say that she'd vote for Trump if he's the nominee and, and yeah. also talks about pardoning him. But, but the interesting thing about New Hampshire is that it will have both a Republican and a Democratic primary. And I wrote a big piece for the nation on the Democratic side. That's a, a danger zone for Joe Biden, because if Joe Biden loses, say, a third of the primary vote to Marianne Williamson, Dean Phillips, other candidates, maybe write in, there's a campaign up there to write in ceasefire now on Gaza. Um, you know, if a substantial portion of people who come to cast ballots in that Democratic primary don't vote for Joe Biden, that's going to be an alarm bell as well, right? I mean, one of the, the realities of the 2020 campaign is that we do face the prospect of having two candidates nominated by the two parties who are not beloved, particularly by on either side. So we're watching these primaries and caucuses, these early races, to get a, a feel for how much disenchantment there is, how much frustration there is. In Iowa, we found half the people didn't vote for Donald Trump. That's a very significant number. You take that and you you put that in the mix. We'll look at, at New Hampshire and we'll see similarly, you know, what is there a significant slippage on the Democratic side? And so I, I do think we're in a, we're in the kind of like the, the most important season in many ways of the presidential year, because this is where we get a sense of where everything going forward stands. Iowa told us a lot. I will emphasize, I think, both at the Republican side and to some extent, the Democratic side. New Hampshire will tell us even more. 
Our big takeaway today, 31% of Iowa Republicans say they'd consider Trump unfit for the presidency if he were to be convicted of a crime. John Nichols, readamitthenation.com. Thank you, John, for giving us reasons for hope from Iowa Republicans. I think the Iowa Republicans really want you to be hopeful. <laughs> we'll talk to you again the day after New Hampshire. I look forward to it, brother. It should be interesting. Not Black Enough? That's the issue taken up in the award-winning new film American Fiction, starring Jeffrey Wright as a frustrated black novelist. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on the NPR show Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he's heard by more than 8 million listeners on the radio and the podcast. He's worked for 25 years as a critic and columnist, first for the LA Weekly, then Vogue, his work has also appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and The Nation. Last time he was here, we talked about Slow Horses, the Mick Heron spy stories that have been turned into a series on Netflix. John Powers, welcome back. Glad to be here, John. American Fiction, the film about an unsuccessful Black writer, is based on a 2001 novel called Erasure, written by Percival Everett, who is a Black writer and a very successful one, an award winner. He's written something like 15 novels. We talk here about one of them, The Trees, revisiting the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in 1955 in Money, Mississippi. That novel was shortlisted for the 2022 Booker Prize. The book that's the basis of the film American Fiction, Erasure, has been called a dark comedy. But it's a lot more than that. It's an amazing book about something serious, publishing black writers. It's merciless as a satire. It's also formally clever and bold. Tell us about the novel that's the basis of the film, American Fiction. The novel Erasure came out in 2001. And, and I would preface it by saying that when it was written, at that point, Percival Everett had published several novels that were considered to be quite weird, retelling of Greek myths, for instance, academic parody novels. And in fact, he was doing stuff that wasn't officially considered to be black. And clearly this got to him. So he wrote in Erasure, a novel about an unsuccessful writer, kind of like himself in that respect, who is tired of being unsuccessful and is horrified to discover that, that he's being told to write blacker. When he looks in the world to see what that means, at that point in 2001, which would be the world of books like Precious by Sapphire, and in, in Hollywood terms, films like Boys in the Hood. You know, also there's Richard Wright's Native Son in the background, which is basically he realizes that if when people want you to write black, they want you to write about the ghetto. And in fact, in the book, there is a book called We Lives in the Ghetto, which is a huge <laughs> bestseller, that, that we see parts of and that the hero, Thelonious Monk Ellison, views with great contempt. The major plot point here is that he decides in frustration to write a savage parody of it called My Pathology, spelled with an F, P-A-F-O-L-G-Y, but that is basically a parody of that kind of novel. And much to his horror and surprise, and maybe a little delight, 
it is taken up and becomes a literary sensation. And this, this is the, uh, the one successful book he's ever written, which is the book he wrote with total contempt for the audience and the thing that he's writing. Surrounding that is the story of his relationship to his family. He is from an upper middle class black family. His father was a doctor. His brother and sister are both doctors. He's the oddball out because he's the writer. And his mother is, is suffering from Alzheimer's. So you intercut between those two stories, his writing story and his family story. And then because Percival, Percival Everett never writes a simple book, there are also imaginary conversations between people. There are book reviews in the New York Times. There's the curriculum vitae of Monk Ellison. There are, there are parodies within parodies, and the story gets wilder and crazier, shot through with hilarity and anger. Yeah, my favorite part of the things that are included in the novel, there's the complete novel written by our yes, character, the, the My Pathology. Novel, yes. Six chapters of ghetto talk. And I'm glad you mentioned that it, the novel also includes the CV and publishing list of, of, of our protagonist because he has an MFA in writing from UC Irvine, which is yes. just downstairs from my office. <laughs> I know. It's, it's... Definitely <laughs> a sign of, of talent. Turning this ruthless literary and political satire and these formal experiments into a movie is a big challenge, especially for a young first-time director Cord Jefferson. Yes. Um, and Cord Jefferson had a successful career writing TV shows, like things like Succession. I mean, they were very six successful. But of course, here, here he's doing something which is exceedingly hard. If I can put it in this way, taking a novelist that might have been written if Godard had written novels, a kind of <laughs> Godardian novel, and transforming it into a Hollywood movie that would make sense to a mass audience. So that's an exceedingly difficult thing to do for, for starters. And then in addition to all of that, the world has changed in the 22 years since, since Percival Everett had, had written the book. And one, one of the things that had changed is that black writing is not treated in the same way now as it was 21 years ago when he made it. So that Cord Jefferson couldn't just make this a ruthless satire of how black writers never get published unless they write obvious ghetto type stuff, because that's simply no longer the case. So in adapting this incredibly complicated, angry novel for a mass audience, what he's done is he's simplified it. For example, you no longer get the huge 70 pages of parody of the ghetto novel. You get one scene, very wittily staged, I think, in the film of, of him writing the novel. You get a sense of it. But everything is played down except for the family story, which I think is made to occupy more of the book. And that's partly for two reasons. You get the family story partly because it's more sentimental. And I think that the, the general vision of the film is softer than the book. But also because part of what this book does that, that Everett does as well as many other things is want to juxtapose the world of the writer and the crazy ghetto fiction with the actuality of middle-class Black life. This film, I think, perhaps overdoes that a little bit, wanting to move us a lot with the story of the mother's Alzheimer's and all the rest, which seems more generic, I think, in the film than it does in the book. I want to go back to the scene you mentioned, how Cord Jefferson deals with the gigantic section of the novel 
that is the ghetto satire that our our protagonist, Monk Ellison, writes. Normally, the way this is treated in a Hollywood movie is the writer sits at the typewriter and bangs away. Court Jefferson has a much more creative and pretty successful way of showing what it is that Monk Ellison writes. Tell us a little more about Well, he's writing, but the action is all in the room with him. So that he's interacting with what he's writing and it's taking place. So it's not separate. You don't cut from him and then cut away to a scene from the book. The writing and the scene coexist in the same space, which is probably in some ways the closest thing to the spirit of Percival Everett in the entire thing, which is you have the multiple layers of things working at the same time, in, in coexisting in the same space. And, and it's a good scene. And you do very quickly get, in film terms, you register the kind of novel that it is. Because in film terms, as opposed to book terms, a little goes a long way. So that's exceedingly well done. One other thing about the scene where Thelonious Monk Ellison is writing the novel and two characters are acting it out as he's writing, the characters interrupt the scene to complain to him. Yes. Yes. This doesn't sound right. You can do better yes. than this. Yes. Which, it's a nice, uh, what do we call it? Postmodern touch. It is, and, it is, and you know, and you know, and it, you know, there's there's a great you know Irish novel by Flann O'Brien where the characters start taking over, taking over the book from the writer. I mean, I mean, it is a classic modernist thing. You mentioned that one of the problems that Court Jefferson faced is that. Things have changed for black writers in the, what, 23 years yeah. since Percival Elliott first published this. That's not everybody agrees with that. Pamela Paul, who was the, was the editor of the New York Times Book Review until a year or two ago, wrote about this. And she says, although Erasure came out in 2001, quote, the mindset it describes feels even more pervasive in 2023. I guess you don't agree with that. Well, she's talking from inside the publishing industry, and it may well be the case. In, I, I simply say in relation to, in, in some of my, for my reviewing, get sent, sent lots of books. I can tell you that just over the 20 years, the range of books that are sent to me by African-American writers has expanded hugely. And certainly critics do things like they now review them. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, because I think you know, I think one of the strange things probably for Percival Everett is you're writing these really interesting, smart books in the 80s and 90s, and they barely get noticed because you're doing something weird and nobody wants to read about it. So I think it's more open in that respect. I'm certainly not suggesting everything is great. Even the film itself seems like it has to play things a little safer than you would if you were adapt, you know, maybe a comparable adaptation of a white novel, a novel by a white writer about white people might actually be able to be more daring than than this adaptation. But it's it feels to me that it softens it in a way to make it more acceptable and accessible. Percival Everett has written 15 novels. Let's note that the one that was shortlisted for the Booker is about the lynching of a 14-year-old black boy oh, yeah. in Mississippi. Oh, oh yes, no, and an interesting sort of weird side effect of this book when he wrote it was he was a writer who basically only a, a small number of people knew about. This book put him on the map. It, and in fact, he got put on the map by writing the book about how you can't get on the map unless you write a book that's unlike. And he has become a, he's, he became a literary star from this book.
but it's a great book. You should also say that it's not like he somehow lucked out and became it. And he wrote the book that hit the moment and that and it still resonates. It resonates truly because we also realize that, you know, that with if you're an African-American artist of a certain kind of in a certain kind of way, you will always be more successful and more in demand if you if you do a certain kind of thing. If I can just parenthetically say it's interesting that Colson Whitehead who was writing wonderful books, an admired writer who got good reviews, but never really sold or got much all that much attention until he wrote Underground Railroad. And all of a sudden he's writing about slavery, which is the kind of thing he pointedly was trying not to do originally. And I don't think I don't think he he did that as a commercial effort. I think I thought he was pushing himself thinking, oh, this is the kind of thing I don't like to write about. I should probably write about it because it's scary and hard. So, I mean, I respect it. But that's the one that took off, because still, I think most audiences, if, if it's a black writer, will feel happier if they're writing about you know, about slavery, than in his case, writing about growing up as a privileged black kid in Sag Harbor. <laughs> yes. Let's talk for a minute about Jeffrey Wright. I think most of us discovered him in the HBO Angels in America. And we saw him recently in Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, where he was the, the general who hosts the convention of the, is fantastic of, in of yes. the genius kids. I see uh, he's also been in three James Bond films and one Batman and uh, lots of TV, including Boardwalk Empire. So he's done a lot and he's very well respected, but people are saying this is the best thing he's ever done. I don't know if this is the best thing he's ever done. I think this is the chance for him to do a lot more of what he what he normally does. You know, I mean, he's been a fantastic actor, you know, what, for 20 years or more than 20 years. I mean, the, I mean, he's been fantastic ever since I saw him, but he rarely gets the kind of role where he gets to be the center of a movie showing a whole different range of things. I mean, usually he is like the fantastic supporting actor. In the James Bond things, he's Felix Leiter. You know, he, he's, you know he's, he's showing up as the friend. And in fact, you're always happy to see him because you know he'll be good. Some reviewers have complained about this movie that there are really two separate films here. The sharp comedy about publishing and the drama about family problems. One critic wrote, not only do the two films barely meet, they often feel in competition with each other. I wonder if you agree with that. I don't feel that they're in competition with each other. I, I think they don't they don't merge together perfectly. And I mean, and depending on which one you prefer, I can imagine being being less happy with the other one. So, I mean, I was enjoy, I enjoy more the satirical hard, harder edge side and the family, the family side seems more generic to me. Maybe because we've seen lots of movies about families and the dad committed suicide and the mom has Alzheimer's. That feels kind of familiar. It's less familiar with African-American stuff. And I think clearly, poor Jefferson, who's a very smart guy, clearly wants to juxtapose the down-to-earth reality of, of that life where there are family problems, people are sad. The, the brother thinks he's secretly gay and everybody knows he's gay. Okay, there's, there's that with the, the wild comedy because you're, you're showing, oh, that there actually is an ordinary black world that's distinct from both the crazy ghetto stuff, but also from the crazy academic thing because Monk Ellison is a weirdo and he knows he's a weirdo. He's an angry weirdo who doesn't quite fit into his family properly. And watching myself, I got a little bored with the family stuff. I thought there was too much of that. And I think it also softened things a little bit. 
for me, the most telling detail. The sister dies. How does she die in the film? In the film, she dies of a heart attack at a restaurant where they were having dinner. In the book, she's a doctor at an abortion clinic, and she gets murdered by an anti-abortion activist. Part of the book's anger is that sort of thing. The, the, the craziness and stupidity of this, of the, in some ways, maybe the most virtuous person in the entire book, killed by an anti-abortion activist. When you take that out, and she just dies of a heart attack, that's a sentimental touch. And I think with the family stuff, you tend, it tends to go more there. And I would have preferred it if they had kept it with, the, the, with more teeth to it. The novel Erasure is fierce, uncompromising, and, and wild. The movie American Fiction is funny and warm. My suggestion is see the movie and read the book. I agree with you completely. I think in a strange way, it's one of those things where it's interesting to, re to do them side by side because you won't regret reading the book for sure because the book's great. I think the movie's pretty good and you won't regret seeing it. It's, it. It actually goes by very well. It's really well acted. Jeffrey Wright's great. It's funny. It's a good movie that's better than some of the movies that are getting more awards. And it has a funny opening sequence making fun of, of a, quote, woke white student. And it's filled with great stuff. It's just that the book is, it, it's, the book's kind of a landmark. And one of the ways it's a landmark is that it's a tricky, complicated, impossible to summarize and to film book. I mean, he's an experimental writer. And it's not an experimental film. John Powers is critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. John, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.